2: earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase, every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. Looking to refresh your closet, home, or beauty routine this spring? Walmart's got all the stylish goods in one stop. From chic new looks and the latest makeup to quality furniture and tableware. Go to walmart.com slash trending That's walmart.com slash trending for the hottest fashion, home, and beauty finds. Your style at Walmart.
3: As I'm sure you already know, this podcast is produced by the team behind BBC History Magazine. Britain's best-selling history magazine. And if you haven't had a chance to get hold of our magazine recently, we'd like to offer you the chance to get a copy of our next issue absolutely free. Please text the word HISTORY to 78070 to request your free magazine today. One of our team will be in touch to organise delivery direct to your door. This offer is available for a limited time only and only available for UK residents. So please don't miss out Text HISTORY to 78070 to get your free copy today. Just a quick note, texts are normally charged at your standard network rate. Please check with your provider for further details. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. Britain's best selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. Today's episode features a conversation with Alan McKell, Professor of History at Yale University. His new book, God's Shadow Sultan Salim, His Ottoman Empire, and the Making of the Modern World, explores the life and legacy of Salim I the 16th-century ruler of the Ottoman Empire. Alan spoke to our world history editor, Matt Elton, about the ways in which Selim shaped the world around him and why his impact has been forgotten today.
0: So first of all, um, what is the scope of your new book?
4: Well, um, my new book is a life and times of one particular Ottoman sultan named Selim, Selim I, who lived from 1470 to 1520. Um, So that's really the period that I cover in the book. That said, um, I think that what happens in those 50 years of Salim's life has a huge impact um, far beyond his life. Um, And I'm sure we'll get into some
0: of that. Mm. I mean, it's, it's a fascinating period, um, and you say that in some senses we're all living in Salim's shadow. Um, so he's obviously a character with huge uh, impact and influence. He's not someone that I confess that I'd heard very much about before reading your book, um, and I wondered if you had any idea why, why that might be the case.
4: Right. So um, I, th- I think part of the reason that we have, um, you know, missed Salim's story Um, and really this story of the Ottoman Empire more generally in thinking about the creation of the modern world, um, is that we're in we're invested in um a story of the rise of Europe and then the rise of America. Um and uh we have cut out Islam and its foremost representatives in this period, the Ottomans, from that story. Um, and I think there are there are deep political reasons why that is, um, and uh, part of the project of the book is to be able to bring back um, Islam and the Ottomans into that story. Not simply because I'm interested in those things, but because for for contemporaries in the period, um, Islam and the Ottomans were vitally important. So if you read, you know, Columbus's journals, um, he Islam is all over um, um, that story. Martin Luther, as I discuss in the book, um, writes endlessly about the Ottomans. The Ottomans, if you were to, to sort of take a poll of world leaders around the year 1500 of who are the greatest powers of the world, the Ottomans would be um, near the top of that list. And yet um, we don't seem to include them in this story of the rise of the modern world. I think a lot of that has to do with a kind of retrospective um, historical narrative from the 19th century when it was clear that Europe was dominating the world. Um, and therefore, uh, we created narratives that stretch back really to 1492 as the kind of origins of why Europe is now dominating the world. Um, and, and because Europe was dominating the world in the 19th century, everyone who wasn't was, was sort of cut out of that story and therefore cut out of the, uh, of the story going back to 1492, um, 1517,
0: and then moving forward until the 19th century. Um, this might seem on the face of it, a slightly odd question, but I wondered what, um, Salim's parents' stories tell us about the wider world in which they lived and into which he was born. Right. Um, Thank you. Thank you for that
4: question. So, um, Salim, as I said, is born in 1470. His father is Bayezid, who uh, at the time of of Salim's birth is still a prince, um, but will become the sultan in 1481. Um, Salim's grandfather, um, so Bayezid's father, is Mehmet the Conqueror, the sultan who conquers Constantinople um, in 1453 and makes it an Ottoman Muslim city. Um, so his mother is, uh, her name is Gulbahar. Um, and she is, uh, from Albania as best we know, probably born in the 1450s. So let me say a bit about Gulbahar, and then I'll go back to Bayezid, because Gulbahar in some ways is more interesting. Um, So she's born in Albania in um, the 1450s. Um, The Ottomans are conquering various parts of Albania um, through the 1450s, 1460s, 1470s. She's captured in a battle, um, is made a slave, a concubine, um, is brought to the, the harem of Bayezid. So both sultans and princes had harems. Um, as part of becoming a concubine, she would um, either uh, um, on faith or ostensibly have converted to Islam. Um, and um, she she would have entered the harem with many other women. Um, um, she The way that the harem worked was that uh, sultans and princes produced their heirs, so their successors, from their concubines rather than their wives, their legal wives. Exactly why that's the case, we still don't really understand. But, but historically, that's, that's the way it works. Um, and after a concubine has uh, born a son to the sultan, sexual relations between sultan or prince, um, sexual relations cease. So the the phrase that's usually used is 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 one woman, one son. Um, so uh, once uh, Gulbahar um, gives birth to Salim, it's her responsibility to educate him in languages, uh, Turkish, Arabic, Persian, um, in things like archery, um, in all of the uh, sort of Normal school topics that we would know: arithmetic, um, writing, geography, those kinds of things. Um, and then once, um, once these uh, sons of princes or sons of sultans reach a certain a certain age, um, quite young, often ten to fifteen, they they become governors in um, in, in various locales. So when these young sons are sent off, they're sent off with their mothers and they are, you know, they're, they're, they're teenagers at best. So it's really the mothers, um, people like Gulbahar who are the administrators in these cities. And we can get into where Gulbahar and Salim go later, but just in terms of understanding Salim and his parents, it's interesting to note that, Every sultan in the six hundred year uh, history of the Ottoman Empire is um, a Christian woman from outside of the cultural space of the Ottoman Empire, almost always, um, who is brought to the harem as a concubine, converted, and raises their uh, raises their son. Um, so, so that's very interesting for understanding. Um, the way that the empire brings in literally other cultures um, um, into the, the the royal family itself. If we think that that every sultan um, um, has a, a kind of non-Turkish, non-Muslim heritage as as part of himself. Um, and so that, I think that gives us a sense of, of, of kind of both, you know, the actual military conquest of the empire that they were moving in Albania. Um, but also one of the ways of integrating, um, new cultures into the empire. And of course I don't want to sugarcoat slavery or being a concubine. Um, um this is you know this is a, a, a status of non-freedom for sure um it does allow some upward mobility for these women right they become central administrate administrators in one in one of the largest empires in the world they hold real power in in the ottoman empire you know we we might argue much more power than they would have had had they remained in their villages in albania um so that's that's gulbahar um his father, Bayezid, the prince, um, is um, is uh, um, uh, uh, the governor of Amasya, which is a city in central Anatolia, which is where Salim is born. Um, and uh, at the time of Salim's birth, he's, um, you know, a, a provincial governor who is um, dealing with you know, the repair of roads and dealing with market regulations, um, raising armies, collecting taxes, things of that nature. Um, he, as best we know, his personality is non-confrontational, as opposed to his son. This will become a dynamic later. Um, he, is, um, he is a good bureaucrat. Um, he works to maintain the peace of the empire, Um, he is remarkable for a number of reasons. He rules for quite a long time, um, for over 30 years, um, um, and, um, and, you know, um, has some important conquests, but really it's a period of stability during, um, Bayezid's reign after the kind of conquest of Constantinople and the moves of, of Mehmed the Conqueror further West in the Mediterranean Um, Bayezid's, um, rule is really one of consolidation.
0: What, what do we know then of Salim's early life? Right.
4: So we know he was born in Amasya. Um, he, he stays there until he was 11 when his father becomes the sultan in 1481 um and then moves to the palace in Istanbul with his family once his father becomes um sultan so you know his uh, between between his birth and um and 11 he would have spent most of his time in the harem uh in Amasya with his mother Gulbahar he would have been educated um he would have been Uh, uh, You know, he would have daily exercises, he would um, have practiced things like archery, he played chess, we know, Um, he would have been taught the religious sciences, Um, he would have learned Arabic to be able to read the Quran, the language of religion. Um, So he had a a very pampered, um, opulent, lavish life of the son of an Ottoman prince. Um, he would have had, you know, every, every um, desire and whim attended to by um, servants um, in, in, the, in the harem. The, the, a major moment in his life would have been um, his circumcision ceremony. This is a major moment in any Ottoman royal's life, any young Ottoman boy's life, really. Um, and Salim's is in 1479. Um, he travels to the royal palace in Istanbul as part of this ceremony, And the circumcision ceremony is his introduction to the Ottoman world of royals. It's also his introduction to the world beyond the Ottoman Empire because diplomats and foreign dignitaries were often invited to these ceremonies, these lavish banquets in which kind of um, politics could happen on the side. Um, And Gulbahar would have been responsible for organizing the ceremony for her son. So in in 1481, uh, Bayezid... Selim's father becomes sultan, the whole family moves um, to Istanbul. So Selim's life, um, again, would have now been much larger since um, he is now n- not simply the son of a prince, but the son of the sultan and therefore a potential sultan himself, a potential successor. Um, so it's, it's really in Istanbul when um, the competition with his half brothers gets going because all of them, right, are rivals um, to succeed their father. They are half brothers in that they all have the same father, but different concubine mothers, one woman, one son. So, um, the, the major rivals, uh, for the throne for Bayezid's throne are Salim and his two older half brothers, Ahmed and Kurkud. There's a, there's another brother who's also older, but dies. Um, and so it's really those three who are, are competing for the throne. Um, and it's there where the jockeying for positioning, uh, begins, um, in, in the harem in Istanbul, um, earlier in Amasya as well, but it really gets going in Istanbul. And then the major, the the next sort of major event of his life, um, is when he's 17, he is posted with his mother again to Trabzon to be the governor of Trabzon. Trabzon is, um, on the Southeast coast of the Black Sea far to the east of Istanbul, and is one of the furthest places in the empire from the capital. And that, that is important for marking the fact that Bayezid does not favor Salim to succeed him. Proximity to the capital, proximity of governorships is very, very important. So um, by contrast, Ahmed and Korkud are, are posted to governorships that are quite close um, to Istanbul. Um, and Ahmed and, um, and Salim is posted as far away as possible. Mm.
0: And to what extent then was he never really supposed to amount to much and how much did the fact that he did, how much is that down to his own personality or the role of his mother who you've talked a little bit about, uh, just there?
4: Right. So he is not favored. Um, Ahmed is, is the most favored son to succeed, uh, his father, um, and, uh, this is one of the ways that Salim is quite unique, um, up to this point in Ottoman history, it's usually not always, but usually the eldest, most favored son who succeeds the father to become the next sultan. Um, they are given all kinds of, of resources, um, and connections to be able to make that possible. Um, Salim turns, um, with, with the help of his mother, turns his posting, his disadvantageous posting on the far east of the empire into an advantage in the following ways. Um, as I said before, Bayezid is non-confrontational, is interested in stability and peace. Salim on the frontier is warring with the empire's enemies to his east. So this this includes a whole set of kind of tribal confederations in the Caucasus and in what is today Western Iran, Northwest Iran. Um, These are groups uh, who make their money off of raiding and trading. Um, So as governor of Trapzon, he is constantly having to deal with, you know, Georgian princes coming into his territory and stealing, you know, cattle or taking slaves or something like that. So he is, as in many frontier situations, um, is really um, um, preemptive and, um, and proactive in his use of force. He's an aggressive uh, representative of the empire on its frontier, pushing outwards to prevent um, raids from happening in the first place. So that sets up a confrontation with his father. His father is, it, it, it constantly is saying, Salim, don't do that. Return these captives, um, um, you know, return the weapons that you seize from, from these folks. Sometimes these enemies, uh, to the empire's east will lobby Bayezid saying, you know, um, you're, 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 tempestuous son has, um, you know, taken this territory or taken these resources from us. And if you want stability, um, um, with us, you need to return these materials. And Salim will say, no, we need to be aggressive. So that sets up this, this kind of confrontation, um, with, with his father. Um, it's, it's also important that, that through, um, 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 through Gulbahar, he also, is able to uh, make connections inside of the empire with with um, other other tribal groups or other um, um, other stakeholders in the empire who are not necessarily connected to the central imperial administration. So these include um, tribal confederations, some minority groups, um, disaffected soldiers in in eastern Anatolia. Um, um Gulbihar it has connections with some of the other concubines from, from the harem, whose princes also um are posted to non-advantageous um governorships in the east. And so they they work together to create some of these alliances that later on Salim will, will will use to help him um, um gain the throne.
0: And in fifteen twelve he, he does seize the throne from his father um, what happened and exactly how sort of violent and confrontational was that process
4: right so um so against his half brothers um there is uh, a, an increasingly acrimonious violent aggressive confrontation brewing um before 1512 um and we see this in the form of letters sent back and forth um, even raids on each other's territories in Anatolia. Um, Salim is looking for a way to get close to Istanbul, because again, geographic proximity is very, very important. So one of the ways he does this is by demanding a governorship for his son, his very famous son, perhaps the most famous figure in Ottoman history, Suleiman the Magnificent, is Salim's son, uh, born um, in Trabzon while Salim is governor there in 1494. Um, so Salim demands a, a governorship from for Suleiman very close to Istanbul, and he hopes to be able to use that to travel with Suleiman to that posting and then maybe make a raid on Istanbul. That doesn't work out. Um, Bayezit, you know, refuses that. There's a long back and forth about getting a governorship from for Suleiman. Eventually... He gets the governorship of Crimea, so the very north of the Black Sea, um, which is a recent Ottoman acquisition. Um, And so Suleiman is posted there. Salim travels with him by ship from Trabzon on the southeast corner of the Black Sea up to the north. Um, He drops off um, Suleiman there and then um, begins a slow process of moving through the Balkans, down, um, you know, from what is today Ukraine, down through the Balkans um, to Istanbul. All the while, sending these missives to his fathers, you know, going back and forth between. I would like to come visit you to pay my respects. To I'm going to um, take over the throne from you and kill you. <laughs> um, um, but but slowly, using all of the connections that he had developed to create this, this, this armed force that was slowly marching down the, the Balkans to Istanbul. Eventually there's a confrontation between imperial forces and Salim's forces near the city of Edirne, um, which is in modern day Turkey, um, um, but is close to Bulgaria and Greece. And, um, and uh, Salim is, is at first pushed back, but then Um, but then returns um, once the imperial forces have left and begins marching towards Istanbul. He eventually camps out outside of the palace walls. Um, Ahmed and Korkud get word of this and begin making their moves to Istanbul. Um All of these forces release their allies in the city, and there 's a whole set of of um, fights and confrontations within the city itself, jockeying for position um, when he 's camped outside the city walls he requests an audience with his father it 's granted he goes and meets his father um, in the palace and basically issues a threat that um, either you um, either you um, hand the throne over to me or we'll take it by force. Bayezid scoffs at this threat, sends him away. And then Salim comes in with his forces um, after a few days and forcibly seizes the throne. This is an interesting moment in Ottoman history and also unique in that this is one of the few times up to this point that we have the the forcible um, deposition of a sitting sultan. And so we have now a new sultan, Salim, and an old sultan, the former sultan, alive. And so there's this constant um, worry that Selim has that his father is going to, um, you know, use his, his, his resources as a former sultan to raise an army to come and take the throne again. Um, that doesn't happen. He, he dies soon thereafter, under dubious circumstances. Um, and, then, and then Selim is wholly in possession of the throne There's still the issue of his half brothers. So he spends the the first about nine months of his reign going after his half brothers and he eventually kills them. Um, so it's in, it's, it's only in 14, sorry, in 1513 that he is fully, um, securely holding, um, the, the throne, um, after the deposition and then death of his father and then after the murder of his half brothers.
0: And, do these sort of traits of um being willing to confront uh, other people and i suppose a ruthlessness do they continue into his into his reign
4: absolutely so um you know the the kind of uh, Salim has many monikers, one is god's Shadow on Earth, which is where the title of the book comes from um another that's that's unique to him is uh, Salim the grim um so he he as I said already he was a, he was a very aggressive. Um, personality, as best we know, um, given his time on the frontier and his confrontation with enemies to the east, um, his, his violent seizure of the throne. And, and he, is, he is actually sultan for, for only eight years. He spends most of those years fighting um, in, in, in war. Um, so after um, his seizure of the throne, his elimination of his brothers, his next major confrontation is with the Safavids, of Iran in uh, 1514, which um, requires a massive mobilization of forces, some say the largest army in the Middle East um, up to that point in its history, around 200,000 soldiers, um, move from Istanbul all the way across Anatolia to Iran um, and defeat the Safavids at the Battle of Chaldiran in 1514. Uh, the next major battle of his life is uh 1516-1517, 15, 15, in which he defeats the Mamluk Empire, um, which is a massive moment in global history and really one of the centerpieces of Salim's story. Um his defeat of the Mamluks, um, which is completed in 1517, um, um basically more than doubles the size of the Empire. Um, the Mamluks were based in Cairo. Salim marches to Cairo and includes now in his empire, basically all of the territory of what we think of as the Middle East. Um, up to that point, the Ottoman empire is basically the Balkans and Anatolia. So sort of modern day Turkey, um, give or take. Um, but Salim in 1517 adds all of the Arab world, much of North Africa, um, the, Western coast of what is today Saudi Arabia, so Mecca and Medina, um, parts of Iraq. Um, And um, as I said, this is a massive moment in global history. Um, It it makes the empire for the first time in its history a majority Muslim empire. Up to that point, the, the, the bulk of the population was Christian. It puts them in the Indian Ocean through the Red Sea. Um, and it has massive implications that, that we could talk about more um, for global history, as I argue in the book. But, but to get to your question about, you know, uh, Salim's aggression. Um, yes. So after um, he returns to Istanbul in 1518, after this battle with the Mamluks, um, he spends the rest of his life mostly in Adirne hunting. Um, so he actually spends very little time in Istanbul in the throne um, in the palace, dealing with bureaucratic matters. he He is um one of uh, the quintessential sort of warrior sultans of the of the Ottoman Empire.
0: We'll come back to the uh, idea of of kind of faith and religion more broadly later. But what role did faith play in his own life, I suppose?
4: right. Um so you know that's that's a hard question to get at. um we we can get at get at that um through some of his writings. um so, he and, and we, can, we can get at that through um, his conquests, also, I think, have a lot to say about, about his religiosity as a kind of political matter. I mean, you know, what, what he felt in his soul, it, again, is difficult, is difficult to get at from the sources. But after his defeat of the, of the Mamluks and, and the um, subsuming all of their territory into the empire, the Ottomans become the largest Sunni Muslim empire on earth. Um, Salim is the first Ottoman sultan who can technically claim to be the caliph because he holds Mecca and Medina. Other Ottoman sultans had used that language, but technically the caliph is the holder of Mecca and Medina. And so he is the first one. Um, So he uses that language of um, universal leadership of the Muslim world, a religiously tinged language. He uses that to great effect against the Safavids, who are Shiites, um, against his enemies in Europe. Um, and so that is a sense of how he uses religion for political purposes. Again, whether or not he truly believes in the faith, it, it's hard to tell, but it's clear that that he sees it as a political tool.
3: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
4: We should be able to understand that. We should be able to, to hold that as part of the history the subsequent history of of Europe and America, that the Ottomans were an integral part to that story then, the people living then understood that, and therefore it should be an integral part of our understanding of that period and everything
1: that came after. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed.
0: Something else the Ottoman Empire is synonymous with is trade and trade routes. Um, did these play a key role in the expansion during his reign, or was it primarily sort of military expansion?
4: No, a- a- absolutely, right? Um, um, you know, the 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 Middle East is is called the Middle East because it's in the <laughs> it's between <laughs> Europe and Asia. Um and, and therefore trade routes have always been important um to, to the region. And um, um grabbing uh, um, the heart of the Middle East um, at, in 1517 allows the Ottomans really to monopolize trade between the Mediterranean and the Indian Ocean. Um, Muslims had monopolized that trade for a very long time. That's part of the story of Columbus, right? The reason that he's looking for an alternative route to uh, India and China is because the Mamluks and the Ottomans hold all the trade routes um, um um between the mediterranean and the indian ocean um so trade is, is is a key aspect of of um salim's moves um trabzon where he's first where he's first posted as governor, is an important um, 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 trading city. It, it's at the tail end of, it's at the west, I should say, the western end of, of the Silk Road. So um, a lot of overland trade routes from the east would end in Trabzon, and then goods would be put on ships um, to be sailed further west through the Black Sea. So Marco Polo famously passes through Trabzon during his travels. So Selim is, is quite aware of the importance of trade to the Ottoman Empire very early on. Um, and it's part of the power of the empire, the, the ability to regulate trade. Um, after 1516-1517, um, the the Indian Ocean trade becomes much more important to the Ottomans because, again, this is the first time they have a foothold in the Indian Ocean world. Um, and importantly, um, and I talk about this in the book quite a bit, is coffee to to Ottoman trade. Um, the Ottomans make coffee the first globally traded commodity. Um, they come across it in Yemen, where coffee had come from Ethiopia. Um, and, um, they, because of the unity of the Ottoman empire after 1517 coffee moves up from Yemen through what is today Saudi Arabia into the middle East through Anatolia into Europe eventually, and then further East overland in Iran and then through, through Indian ocean maritime trading routes. Um, and because they monopolize the supply of, Coffee in Yemen, the Ottomans really controlled the coffee trade for about two hundred years before coffee in the Americas and Southeast Asia takes over the trade um, and so that that brings you know massive amounts of of money into Ottoman coffers. Um, the last thing I'll say just about trade and and economic matters is that d- despite you know the the um, the kind of sparkling nature of the coffee trade, um, the Ottomans really make most of their money from tax revenue on agricultural land. Very boring, but very, very important um, um, taxation on agricultural commodities. So more than doubling the size of the empire, um, um, what, what Selim does in 1517, allows them um, to tax much more territory, much more agricultural production, and again, brings in lots of money into the coffers of the empire
0: your book um does two things at the same time which is really interesting it tells a story of this one specific figure but it also almost i suppose channels world history through this through this story and i was really interested you mentioned columbus there the way that columbus who quite often is the central figure in in a history is almost like this this side character how how should we see columbus and the expansion to america in light of in light of this profile i suppose
4: Right. Um, So, as I said, you know, Salim lives from 1470 to 1520. And one of the things that drew me to this period is the fact that we have all of these world changing events happening in these years. So, 1492, both Columbus's voyages and the expulsion of the Jews from Spain and the Reconquista of Spain. Um, We have 1517, the Protestant Reformation. Um, in this period, we have the creation of uh, states that um, have various lingering remnants into the present, um, whether that be the Ottomans or the Safavids or the Habsburgs or the Qing, uh, the Ming and then the Qing. Um, So um, as, as I said before, the, if you were to read the sources from the period, you would see that the Ottomans are involved in all of these things. And yet we don't tell this story. So to answer your question about Columbus, um, yeah. So, um, you know, Columbus is born in, in 1451. Um, so just a few years before the Ottoman conquest of Constantinople. Um, he's born in Genoa, which is a, a, um, Mercantile uh, port city with many deep connections to the Eastern Mediterranean and uh, the Black Sea, territories that will become Ottoman in a few years. Um, he is exposed to Crusaders leaving from Genoa to try to battle Muslims for the retaking of Jerusalem or the taking of Jerusalem, we should say. Um, um, so so even in his infancy, infancy, there's a kind of sense of the East of Islam of the Ottoman Empire. Um some of the first um 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 times he takes to sea are on merchant vessels uh that are trading uh with the eastern Mediterranean. So he goes to Chios um and he goes to Tunis. Um the, that that's his first direct experience of of the Muslim world. We we don't often think about that in Columbus's biography. Um and um then he eventually makes it, makes it to Spain. The story of, of going back and forth to try to get patrons for his, his voyages is one that's quite well known. Um, he, uh, fights in various armies of the Reconquista. He's present at the retaking of Granada in, in 1492 at the very beginning of the year in January. Um, and on the first page of his, of his journal, his, uh, of the voyages, he says that After you, my sovereigns, Isabella and Ferdinand, retook Granada for Christendom, you uh, sent me off to find the great Khan of India. So right there, he connects the defeat of Islam in Spain with the voyages. Um, I think we as historians don't often put those two things together. Uh, we usually are either interested in the Atlantic voyages and everything that they represent and everything that will come after them, or we're interested in the Reconquista, and the expulsion of the Jews, um, the unification of Spain, and what that means for Christendom in the Old World. Um, so I really wanted to, to hold those two things together and talk and understand how the influence of Islam on Columbus's life and on his on the, the life of everyone in that generation, um, is a part of the story of the Atlantic voyages and has to be understood in that way, um, that the, the voyages have to be understood in that way. Um, so you see this even when Columbus arrives in the Americas, right? He doesn't, he thinks he's somewhere in Asia until, until he dies. In fact, in 1506, he thinks he's arrived in Asia, um, and he uses the language of Islam to understand what he sees in the Americas. So he says, um, upon, upon um, seeing a group of Taino women, indigenous women in the Caribbean, for example, he, he calls them Moorish women, right? Um, um, later, when Cortez comes to Mexico, um, he says that he sees 400 mosques. In Mexico, he calls Montezuma a sultan. All of these things. So the, these kind of flashes of Islam in the early Americas of, of Columbus and Cortez is very strange and 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 odd, and, and needs an explanation. And I think the explanation is the fact that. Um, these men were formed in the crucible of the confrontation between Islam and Christendom in, in the old world. Cortez, for example, uh, fights in North Africa against, against Muslim soldiers before he goes to Mexico and then comes back and fights the last battle of his life in Algiers. So, um, yes, we usually think of Columbus as sort of the major protagonist of world changing events. Um, 1492 is very important to the history of the globe, obviously. Um, but there is a, a story about Islam and the Ottomans that is integral to the story of 1492 that we've missed and that I'm trying to restore in my book. And and it's there for Columbus. Um, so um, it needs to be there for us.
0: Are there, are there echoes in later American history of the stories of Islam and the Ottoman Empire that we don't fully acknowledge or that uh, we don't really understand
4: yeah there is a through line from 1492 to I would say to the present of, of the role of Islam in the Americas if we're talking about the United States or if we're talking about South America if we if we stick with the United States for for a moment um, you know I, I've, I've already sort of discussed in detail the Columbus and how Islam impacts that um, you know, there's a whole other history of how Columbus sort of becomes American, um, uh, which, you know, we could get into, but, you know, the controversy over Columbus's statues today is a very real one. It has a lot to do with Italian immigration at the end of the 19th century, et cetera. But nevertheless, it, Columbus is part of the story of, of the United States, clearly. Um, then, then the next sort of major way of thinking about the role of Islam in the Americas and the United States is slavery. So, um, very early, even at the beginning of the 1500s, um, the first, um, converted Muslims are forcibly brought, um, to the Caribbean as laborers. So, um, in 1452, um, the Pope issues a bull, um, which gives legal cover for the enslavement of West Africans, uh, of any religion, Saracen or more, um, 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 And, uh, this, this, um, this, uh, for about 50 years means that West Africans are brought to Iberia, uh, Valencia, for example, is a very important slave market. Um, once, uh, um, this, the Spanish cross the Atlantic, um, and start building plantations with the, the massive death of indigenous peoples, um, that there's a labor shortage, in the Caribbean and, um, Spanish plantation owners start demanding labor of various kinds. And so this, this pool of, um, enslaved West Africans in Iberia becomes, um, a ready source of labor. Spanish authorities though are worried about taking these people to the Americas because of Islam. And they're very explicit about this. So, um, um, um They pass various uh, decrees saying that um, West Africans must first go to Iberia, be baptized, um, be trained in Christianity, and then only then can can be taken to the New World. Um, and, And they specifically cite the bad customs of Islam as part of this. Um, And now, if in the Spanish imagination there's somehow, you know, obviously fantastical, a link between the indigenous peoples of the Americas and Islam, right, that Taino women look like Moorish women, etc., then... If you're going to be, you don't want to be bringing more and more Muslims to ally with their, you know, cousin, Taino Muslims somehow um, against the Spanish, right? Especially since, you know, this is your old world enemy. You don't want to import it into the new world. Plantation owners soon say, you know, this takes too long. We can't wait years for labor. So we want the direct shipment of slaves from West Africa to, um, to the new world. This goes back and forth. Um and, and this is very early. We're talking about 1500 to about 1530. Um but eventually more and more there are more West Africans both um um Wolof uh Muslims and 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 others. The largest group of Muslims are the Wolof. Um but but they're, but but, but there are they're, uh Muslim and non-Muslim West Africans brought to um to the Americas, and 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 this concern, this this um, anxiety about Islam, you see that throughout um, the, these early decades in terms of slavery. You know, if you were to fast forward, there are all kinds of other instances in way in 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 all these other kinds of instances um, in which Islam plays plays a role um, in the shaping of the Americas. So, for example, um, John Smith. The first colonial governor of Virginia, before he goes to Virginia, is a slave in the Ottoman Empire for a couple of years. Um, and this is such a formative experience for him that his his personal seal um, is, uh, contains three severed um, um Turkish heads on it um turbaned heads um uh, uh of turks that he supposedly killed in battle and this seal interestingly enough is on the first map of virginia so here we are in the first map of virginia um having three turkish heads on it very strange right the mayflower trades in the eastern mediterranean with, with uh, ottoman ports before it ever crosses um, the atlantic Um, In accounts uh, um, throughout the 17th uh, century of um, British ships going back and forth um, 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 to the Americas, the constant threat of Barbary pirates um, is there. Um, In debates around the Constitution of the United States, there is a question, a sort of theoretical question about could a Muslim be president of the United States? Right. This is this is in the same context of could a Catholic, could a Jew be president of the United States. Right. Um, Thomas Jefferson, quite famously, right, has a Koran that he reads and studies. Um, the first war that America fights as a as an independent nation is with Barbary pirates in North Africa, of course. There are all kinds of ways in which one could narrate the history of the Americas um, and in this case, the United States. Um, through its connections to the Muslim world. And a lot of this has been lost, I think. And that goes back to to the sort of story of cutting Islam and the Muslim world out of the history of, quote-unquote, our world, right, of the West. Um, And, of course, today, you know, uh, America's major theater of military operations is in the Muslim world. And there it's quite striking to think, for example... I mean, it's tragic, um, but telling that there remains a connection between fighting Muslims and fighting the indigenous peoples of the Americas. So um, the helicopters that are, are in Afghanistan are um, um, Apache and Kiowa helicopters, Tomahawk missiles, right? The raid against Osama bin Laden was, was dubbed Operation Geronimo. I don't think these things are just kind of quirky things that we should write off. Um, it points to a much longer, deeper history of, 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 of violence um, in the American
0: psyche. Do you think there are other sort of international fears or sort of preoccupations that we have today that this story casts new light on?
1: Um...
0: Yeah, I mean, I think
4: so. Of course, I, I don't. I don't want to speak too strongly in civilizational terms, because I think that that can be dangerous. I, I don't want to say that um, today, Islam and Christianity are fighting for the soul of the earth or something like that. Nevertheless, I do think that if one were to look around the globe today, the most consistently vilified group are Muslims. Whether we're talking about Uyghurs in China, Trump's Muslim ban, immigration to Europe, India, right? Um, Now, again, I don't want to paint with too broad a brush here. There are local, particular very specific reasons for, for all of those instances and, and histories that we have to attend to. Um, nevertheless, it it is the case that I think there is a global vilification of Islam currently happening that we have to understand in, in real ways. Um, I think there are some connections to the history that I'm talking about of this kind of moment in which um, Islam and Christendom are on, are on fairly equal footing, Around fifteen hundred, or Islam is even in the as- ascendancy, but we're on the cusp of "quote unquote" the rise of the West. Even though I think that takes several centuries, it's not as though once Columbus crosses the Atlantic suddenly. Um, um, but I think I think there are there are lessons here. Um, one of the lessons is that. Christians and Muslims have gotten along for a very long time they get along today they got along in the in 1500 and in the early modern period and we should remember that um I think we should also um seek to understand Islam the Muslim world Muslims um, in in um, a humanizing um and an understanding kind of way right um, um it, it's amazing to me especially in the United States and in certain parts of Europe, the way that Muslims are talked about as though they're infiltrators or invaders, you know, and other of a certain kind. Um, um, Europeans and Muslims have been interacting for centuries. Um, In some ways, Europeans have been interacting with Muslims longer than they've been interacting with anyone else. Um, And so, you know, there there are lessons in that history that we should we should we should um, we should learn. Um, there, you know, uh, those who are interested in these things say that around the year twenty seventy, Islam will be the largest religion on Earth. Will overtake Christianity just in terms of you know numbers. Um, so you know, this is this is something that that. Um, um, you know, Islam is a presence and is and is an integral and 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 positive creative force in our world that we need to um understand, not all of us treat as an other, but see it as an integral part of our history. So just to sum this up, part of the work of the book is to show the integral place of Islam and the Ottomans in all of the kind of world-making events we ascribe to these years: 1492, 1517, the rise of commerce. Um, to be able to imagine that Muslims have been a part of our history and what has brought us to the present, to hopefully provide the groundwork for a, a different understanding of the present, one in which um, Muslims play
0: an integral, constructive role. How, how would you like readers to uh, understand or re-understand, I suppose, this particular life, so Salim's life, and the period in which he lived and his contribution to global history?
4: Yeah, I, I would like readers to to take away um, a much more complicated view of this pe- period um, to see that it's not just a story of Europe and America, um, but that the world um, was much larger in that period. It in, it included the Ottomans as major players in that and that we should be able to understand that we should be able to, to hold that as part of the history of the subsequent history of of Europe and America, that the Ottomans were an integral part to that story then, the people living then understood that, and therefore it should be an integral part of our understanding of that period and everything that came after.
0: What are the um, ways in which this story um, is still played out in present-day Turkey? Right.
4: Um, So Erdogan, the president of, of Turkey today, Um, sees uh, um, in Salim a model for his rule, really more than any other sultan, I would say. Um, And you see this, you know, quite dramatically in the fact that the third Bosphorus bridge, the third bridge ever built over the Bosphorus Strait connecting Asia and Europe, um, Erdogan chooses to name that bridge after Salim. Could have named it after any other historical figure, names it after Salim. So so what does he see in Salim? He sees in Salim uh first a global figure, right? One that that more than doubled the size of the empire, made the Ottomans um a, a force that bestrided three continents, um, that put the Ottomans in the Indian Ocean, um, that made the Ottomans this huge global power. And and that um speaks to Erdogan's ambitions for global power, whether economic or or political. He also sees in in Salim um, a strong Muslim leader, right? That, as I said before, Salim was the first Ottoman Sultan who could who could um, correctly claim to be the caliph. And so the kind of bringing of religion in into the politics of his state, which Erdogan does in all kinds of complicated ways. I think he sees in Salim, um, that kind of model of of a religious leader in the Muslim world, um, one that he aspires for himself, that kind of model Salim is also as we as we spoke before aggressive. he goes after you know he attacked his foreign enemies, the Mamluks and the and the Safavids. Something we didn't mention but is very important is that he leads one of the largest massacres in Ottoman history of Um, Shiites in Anatolia. So his, his own subjects, about 40,000. This is one of the largest massacres until the end of the 19th century. Um, Erdogan similarly is aggressive in, in, in pushing out his authority, whether that is going after minority communities, Kurds, Alavis, um, going after journalists, um, going after Twitter, whoever, whoever it is. Um, you know, something like the symbolic politics of the Hagia Sophia that happened quite recently. Um, that is, again, a, a, a kind of um, symbol of of the projection of, you know, Turkish Sunni religiosity into the world.
0: That's it being converted into a mosque, is that right?
4: That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's Selim's grandfather... Who conquers Constantinople and turns Hagia Sophia from a Byzantine church into a mosque? And then, early in the 20th century, um, Ataturk, uh, the father of modern the Turkish Republic, turns it into a museum. So, a sign of Turkish secularism, a secular space of learning and education. Um, and Erdogan now has just turned it into a into a mosque again. You know that that politics domestically is very important. Um, so much of the history of the Turkish Republic after 1923, after the fall of the empire and the creation of the Turkish Republic was about distancing the Ottoman empire from the Turkish Republic, that there was a, there was a break, right? So, um, that the Turkish Republic will be secular, whereas the empire was religious. Uh, the alphabet will be Latin instead of Arabic Persian script, right? We will have... A parliament rather than a sultan, all of that, all of that kind of stuff. You know, looking towards Europe rather than the East. Erdogan is really the first um, um, leader of the republic to embrace the Ottomans. He often speaks of himself as uh, the grandson of the Ottomans, which is interesting in that he he skips the father's generation, he skips the Republican generation to go back to um to the Ottomans. And he supported all kinds of you know construction projects, of refurbishing Ottoman sites, um supporting you know the study of Ottoman history in all kinds of ways. Um so you know the, the Ottomans and and Salim in particular are very live for Erdogan and serve um in the present all kinds of, of political agendas for him
3: that was Alan Mikhail God's Shadow, Sultan Selim, His Ottoman Empire and the Making of the Modern World is out now, published by Faber. That's all for today. Thanks for listening. This episode was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. We'll be back tomorrow with another talk from our 2019 History Weekend. (laughs)